Well, if you've purchased a home, if you've sold a home, you know that it can be an extremely stressful situation. It can be exciting, invigorating, very much a big deal. But it can also bring with it anxiety and stress. And in just a moment, we're going to check in with the president of the Home Inspectors Association of BC. Uh, but first, take a listen to part of this story from Global BC reporter Jordan Armstrong. This, uh, this home has been on the market for at least a few months. The crazy days of subject-free offers are long gone. Sales are slow. And realtors are looking for ways to pick up the pace. Enter David Aslan. We walk in the kitchen, we test all the appliances. Aslan's pre-listing home inspections are for the benefit of the seller. 75% of the time, the buyer will skip the home inspection once you have it pre-inspected with us. But is he protecting the prospective buyer? We're not actually uh, bearing anything. Everything is in the report. So we overload the report with positive items so that when they get to the negative, it's not so discouraging anymore. A marketing claim that's not discouraging, but alarming to the president of the Home Inspectors Association of B.C. All right. Uh, Jordan just mentioned the uh, president of the Home Inspectors Association of B.C. He is on the line with us now, Bob Ham. Thank you so much for being with us this morning. Thank you for having me. Uh, The Home Inspectors Association of B.C. has uh, filed a complaint about this. So what what is the the basis of the complaint? Essentially, what we're saying is that the um, the product that David is putting out is a conflict of interest and it breaches ethical lines. Um, there's been a lot of talk about the, the pre-inspection and that we're misunderstanding what a, pre, a pre-listing inspection is. And we understand that. We know that the pre, pre-listing inspection is for the seller. We know that a buyer shouldn't rely on it. It's where he goes after that. He has in his... Uh, in his own words, he's using the pre-listing home inspection as a hook to find out who is buying and selling um, the house and sending that information to the listing agent. He's crossing boundaries, uh, ethical boundaries, to try and generate more uh, referrals from the realtors. And he's doing that by helping them sell the home. That you know, if you're if you're going to put money in the pockets of the realtors, in effect, by helping them get the sale, they're going to be grateful, and they're going to give you more inspections. Maybe they're not you're not going to get more pre-listing inspections because of it, but they're also going to be selling homes for buyers, and they're going to suggest, why don't you uh, do this inspection for me too? Because they know uh, that he's going to write a report that's going to make it easier for them to sell the home. Uh, is it also because of the promise that he had put on his website that he doesn't get paid unless the house sells? That's a huge part of it. A home inspector should be impartial. We shouldn't really be working for anybody. We should basically be doing a totally independent um, inspection of the home and providing uh, providing a report that reflects the condition. It shouldn't be written to gratify our own client, let alone anybody else in the, in the process. Our cl- the house is what it is, and that's what we should report. Uh, and because- he, as, soon as, he, as soon as he says that he is going to accept payment at the end on closing, he now has an incentive to get that house sold, or he's not going to get paid. And that puts him in a conflict where he now may want to fudge um, certain comments about deficiencies, downplay them, make them sound a little better than what they actually are. Or in his case, as he says, he will load down the report with positives so that those main points, those deficiencies, aren't as discouraging. He's essentially manipulating the report in order to manipulate the buyer, in order to be paid. Right. So it's it's not a question of, say, leaving things out of the report, leaving the negatives out, but it's where they're placed and how they're presented in it. That's true. I mean, if you if you if you wanted to sell a rotten apple, the easiest way to sell a rotten apple is to put it in a barrel of good apples and make it hard to find it. And and what he's doing is he's making it harder for people to find and understand what the deficiencies are. A tip, you know, a typical home inspection report 
isn't going to focus as much on the positives because that's not what the client needs, the buyer needs to understand in order to make an informed decision on the house. They need to understand what the problems are going to be, what the financial liabilities might be with that home. And that's what's important at the time of the purchase. All the other good, wonderful, positive stuff, that's the stuff the realtor is going to point out. That's the stuff they're going to see um, when they look at the house. And that's the stuff they're going to maybe need to learn about after they purchase the house. None of those things are going to put them in a position of financial liability. Right. Uh, what, what is, what is your, um, your opinion on pre-inspections, generally speaking? There's nothing wrong with pre-listing inspections. I, I do three or four a year. I don't do very many. And I don't know a whole lot of inspectors that do a lot of pre-listing inspections. His purpose of using pre-listing inspections isn't because he wants to build up the biggest market in the world in, in pre-listing inspections. In my opinion, what it is, is it's a way that he can provide a benefit to realtors and then maybe get more buyer's inspections later from them. Right, because... That would be be the result. That's what I would expect if I was using his plan. And and he even says that, and that's in Jordan's story, that when when potential buyers see the pre-listing inspection, 75% then don't go ahead with their own inspection. What would your advice be, not not just dealing with this one particular individual, uh, but for anybody who is looking at purchasing a home and you arrive there or you're greeted and and you're told, here you go, this is the pre-listing inspection? I would, I would take it as a guideline. If I'm doing a pre-listing inspection for somebody and, and I'm doing it with a thought in mind that that inspection is going to be given to any number of other potential buyers and that they're going to look at that and make an assessment about the house based on that inspection. What the seller or the buyers need to understand is that was done for the seller and the seller is now going to take that report and they're going to take a look at their house and maybe fix some things and disclose other things. There's nothing that I can say um, or or confirm that if they did repairs, they did them properly. It's possible that if they did a repair, they actually made, uh, created a worse problem. And there's no way for me to know. There's no way for that to be in the report. The only way you can confirm that that house is in good condition is to have an actual inspection at the time of the purchase. My inspection might be two months old. That might be a totally different house by the time the buyer gets to it. They need to they need to use it as a guideline only and then move ahead with their own home inspection. Right, because even if you have, if you're a seller and you get a pre-listing inspection, and like you said, maybe it shows there's something wrong with the foundation or there's something wrong with the house and you fix it, whether or not you fix it correctly, there's nothing that requires you to disclose that pre-listing inspection to potential buyers, is there? Um, I think probably if you, if you talk to realtors about it and look at the law on that, if an owner of a home knows that there's a problem in the home, they're obligated to disclose that. So if I did a pre-listing inspection and identified that there was a foundation problem, they would have to disclose that there was a foundation problem. If they repaired it, then they would disclose that they repaired it. Um, Now there's going to be some debate as if it was repaired properly, do they actually have to disclose because it's no longer a problem? So, But you don't know whether they repaired it or they had a reputable company that came in and did it properly, only that they repaired it. You know, and I, and I can point out, I've gone into homes after where I've done reinspections on the same home two months apart after they've done repairs by a, a reputable company and they didn't complete the repair and it wasn't done properly. And there's, there's no way, and a buyer could have been in a lot of problems if they had relied on the initial report and the statement that this was repaired. That's why you need that extra inspection, just to make sure that everybody in the whole in the process did the job properly, and that you aren't going to get stuck with the, with the residual effects of um, the repairs. 
Do you think there needs to be, because and when we hear that quite often, or that, that seems to be one, a concern of, of buyers in that you feel like you've done everything right, you've had the inspection done, but even if something like that comes to light, or there was a repair, it was done wrong, or there's still an issue, there's not a lot of recourse to go back to the inspector or to go back and say, well, wait a minute, why wasn't this, why wasn't this found in the inspection? Do you think we need more, I, I guess, maybe accountability? Well, under the uh, legislation, when home inspectors um, were licensed, we have to carry uh, insurance. That's that's the recourse, really. If a home inspector is negligent in doing their job, then a buyer has an opportunity to file a claim, and ultimately, if if it's they think it's worthwhile, is to sue the home inspector. That's the protection that they have and what a home inspector is going to do is they're going to do everything they can to make sure that they don't miss things and that they report them properly so that the buyer understands because we have liability and in this particular case where uh, the Home Inspectors Association has filed the complaint with Consumer Protection BC, what do you hope uh, the outcome will be? Because it seems like this one is a little bit different in that it's, it's not as though he was breaking any laws, but it's more of an ethical question. So what are you hoping that the, the outcome will be? Well, our initial, our, there, there are two, a number of different things we wanted to achieve doing this. The first one was uh, with going to the media was to let buyers know that this was happening and to be be aware of it and to check check out the home inspector and make sure that they're not um, putting themselves in a position where they're relying on information that is manipulating them. The second thing is, as far as Consumer Protection BC, is to have them stop this practice with this inspector, with David Aslan. Um, our target wasn't necessarily David Aslan himself. He happens to be tied to it, and we can't separate him from his from his product that he's uh, selling. So he, we, we basically said we want him stopped. And I think the wording, if I remember, in the in the thing was to use um, whatever means available or required to stop this this action on his part. The next part of it was for consumer protection to do it in a way that sends a statement to home inspectors that unethical behavior and, and um, putting yourself in a position of serious conflict of interest, which he does when he makes himself a part of the sale. Um, we want home inspectors to know you shouldn't be doing that. You can't do that. And, um, you know, that's what we want to get out of this ultimately and we also want to make sure that that government understands that one of the reasons we're having this problem is because regulations right now allow home inspectors to work without proper oversight because nobody has to belong to a home inspection association and not all home inspection or home inspectors associations are doing a good job of oversight of their members. All right. I'll point out that David used to be one of our members until we told him he couldn't do certain things and he decided to leave. Okay. Well, that's, well, that's great to know or good to know for, uh, for people to uh, at least have that information when going into to getting an inspection. Uh, Bob, we'll leave it there, but I appreciate uh, you coming on the program and talking about this today. Thank you so much. Thank you. Well, anyone who was a nervous flyer was uh, likely a bit, well, a bit disturbed by the story on Thursday. It was a sudden, severe incident of turbulence, and it caused an Air Canada flight to be diverted back to Honolulu, uh, leaving almost 40 passengers injured. Initially, when the crews went on board, uh, they found that there were 30 patients uh, each of them assessed. Uh, at the end, there were 37. 30 of them were transported. Nine were serious. 21 were stable. 
All right, that was Honolulu International Airport Fire Chief Glenn Mitchell uh, talking about the incident. So what kind of compensation are you entitled to if you're involved in this kind of uh, accident, in this kind of situation on an airline? Let's bring in Gabor Lukacs. He's the founder and coordinator of Air Passenger Rights, and he joins us on the line now. Thank you so much for being with us. Good morning. When you first saw this story, what was going through your mind as far as compensation or what happens to the passengers now? My first concern was, of course, for the life and the safety of the passengers. Compensation comes only after that. In terms of the passengers' rights, those are governed by the Carriage by Air Act, which incorporates the Montreal Convention, which is an international treaty that governs international flights in general. The passengers... Uh, are covered regardless of fault of the airline. So uh, up to about uh, $210,000 million, the airline is liable for all damages to passengers, medical expenses, lost work, so on and so forth, regardless of whether the airline is at fault or not. If the passenger's damages exceed this amount, then the airline can show that the uh, damages were either um, caused by a third party or that really they, they, they are completely innocent about it. But up to that liability limit there and is on the hook no matter what. And there's a difference, isn't there, if you're on a domestic flight or an international flight? Yes, there is. Because for the international flight or if you're on a domestic flight as part of an international itinerary, your rights are governed by the Montreal Convention. So what will passengers have to do? And thankfully, uh, the, the, there wasn't... Uh, there weren't severe injuries or there, I mean, there was a range of injuries uh, and, and the, the accounts of what was happening. And, and in some cases, some people hitting the ceiling of the plane. What do passengers have to do now as far as getting compensation? Document everything, keep all receipts, keep all uh, medical documents. And then I would recommend that if you had a injury, physical injury in this situation, then you contact a personal injury lawyer who is familiar with the Montreal Convention. Uh, when it comes to health-related uh, claims, it is best handled by an expert. I personally would not want to handle such a claim because I realize that, that the medical sites can be very complicated and uh, airlines will try to shortchange passengers if they don't have proper representation. So this is a serious matter. I wouldn't just take it to small claims court, but speak to a professional. And I would make sure that the lawyer is fully familiar with the Montreal Convention, because one fault that good personal injury lawyers have is that they don't know anything about the Montreal Convention. They may know a lot about the medical side, and they may be very, very good, talented lawyers, but they're not familiar with the legal regime around it necessarily. And you mentioned this before, but it might not be top of mind for people as far as documenting, um, because you might forget some small details that are actually important. How important is that that people who are involved in this document everything? Well, I think courts will understand that when you have sustained a physical injury, you may not be able to have perfect documentation, but keeping receipts, keeping uh, medical documents is certainly very helpful because it happened in a foreign country and obtaining documents later on may be more challenging once you're back in Canada. And when you talk about compensation, if we're talking about somebody who's injured and then they miss work after that or uh, that, I mean, is it similar to being in a car accident? You might not know right away the, the full extent of your injuries and what impact they're going to have. It is in many ways similar indeed, and the airline is liable for all these damages. So the the only thing the airline may not be liable for is if you get scared and sustain only psychological damages. There's some case that says that that's not covered. But if you get physically injured and then because of your physical injury, you have additional psychological damages, that's also covered. If you're not, not at work, it's also covered. Any kind of damage that is caused by bodily injury will be covered. And what about, does it, does the airline have an argument in that even when airlines turn off the seatbelt signs, they still make the announcement that says, we recommend you wear your seatbelt on the flight, even when the sign is turned off. Uh, I would imagine the people who were injured the most would have been those who weren't wearing seatbelts. Does the airline have an argument there? The argument of contributory negligence that you are raising could be made if the seatbelt uh, seat signs were turned on. If passenger, the passenger who doesn't follow crew instructions, who 
were told you need to put on your seatbelt, but fail to do so, could possibly be found to have contributed to their own injury. But if the seatbelt sign is off, just because a recommendation is being made, that's not normally enough to find a contributory negligence for the for the passenger. They they were not told you need to keep it on. They were told you may want to keep it on. And the two things are not the same. And I don't expect a court to view it as the same. What the passengers are responsible for is if they fail to follow instructions from the crew. Right. And just to touch on, on something you mentioned as far as the difference between physical and psychological injuries in that somebody, it's, I would, it's much easier to show... I have this sprain or I, I sustained this physical injury in this, but it's not as though people who were on that flight who say, well, I'm now afraid to fly or I'm, I'm anxious because of this would have a claim. If you just have, uh, you're anxious because you're on that flight, that's not going to qualify under the Montreal Convention. That's unfortunately not sufficient. You need to have more than that. You need to actually suffer some bodily injury. And then if you have psychological injuries flowing out from that, that's what, that's what qualify. All right. Where would you suggest, if people uh, on the plane are, are still looking at this or wondering what they do next, where do you suggest people go to uh, even start that process? I would suggest they get a personal injury lawyer who is familiar with the Montreal Convention, who understands international flights, not just personal injury. All right. Well, Gabor, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, always good to talk to you about this, uh, and uh, hopefully everybody is recovering from uh, the incident that happened. Uh, Gabor, thank you again so much for your time. Thank you very much for having me. Well, there was uh, perhaps a round of applause here and there when it was announced that we could have ride-hailing in B.C., as of September of this year, although others are a bit more skeptical, saying they'll believe it when they see it. My next guest has written a piece in the Globe and Mail about where BC perhaps took a few wrong turns in getting to where we are now with ride hailing. Erez Alani is an associate professor at the Peter A. Allard School of Law at UBC and joins me on the line now. Thank you so much for being with us. Uh, good morning, Jill. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, where do you think BC took a wrong turn when it to comes to uh, this made in BC model for ride hailing? <laughs> um, so look, um, I'll say uh, one thing that I'm most sorry about is the employment piece. Um, as a reminder, these drivers for Uber and Lyft are considered independent contractors meaning they are not employees and are not entitled to any kind of the benefits and protections that employees are entitled to. So think about minimum wage, extra pay, etc. Now, that would be okay if most of them would have been independent contractors. But in reality, many of them work just like full-time workers. So one of the things that I'm worried, worried, worried about is that like in many other jurisdictions, uh, the lawmakers have done nothing in order to protect these workers. Um, you can think about other areas. For example, what if the drivers is being discriminated against because of uh, racial bias or other bias? There are no remedies. There are, there are very little remedies because they are not um, workers and can be protected um, in any uh, significant way. So that's my main concern. Um, my other concern is about congestion, right? We know from other uh, cities, we know from San Francisco, we know from New York that um, con con uh, traffic increases significantly after Uber and Lyft gets in. Um, and so what the uh, legislature decided here in BC is that the passenger transport, uh, transportation board is going to determine these, thing, these things in the future. And I'm concerned about not determining anything in particular, not putting a cap on the number of um, cars on the streets. So I think these are two main things, although I can go on and on about other things that have been neglected. <laughs> but although <laughs> we, we don't know at this point, do we, if there is going to be a cap on the number of cars or boundaries on where the cars can go? So, well, you know, we, we, we know that there are going to be some, but we have no idea the extent of them. And so that's, this is a legislature that took a long time to think about those things. And I, and I think it's great that we thought about what would be the impact here. But then not touching or not deciding about these key points, I think, is a mistake. And then just, you know, letting the passenger transportation board deciding about it is a mistake as well. 
Now add to that other things like um, what about the medallions, the loss of value for medallions, another thing that hasn't been decided about. So the, there are so the, there are many things that were left later uh, to be decided by the market or by the passenger transportation board um, that I'm uh, worried about um, this particular part. Uh, we were speaking uh, this past week uh, with uh, a representative with Lyft because Lyft still hasn't even decided if they're going to bother or if they're going to apply to come to BC. Uh, th- that representative said that the drivers average pr- what they make. They make about 20 bucks an hour uh, when they're driving for Lyft. Uh, I mean, it's different depending on who you ask. Uh, but when you mention that, that they're independent contractors and they don't have the, the protections, that's true. But isn't that up to an individual if they want to take that on? No, right? We we have particular employment protections that are not dependent on people agreements to waive them. This is very basic in the law, right? I can't go now to be an employee and say, these rights and benefits, I'm waiving them. There are some certain protections that we say, these are beyond even our just autonomy or decision. These are basic protection, protections that we insist and we do not allow to waive them. Um, and so the idea is that, look, if they're independent contractors, right? If the Lyft representative is right, and this is a student who works every once in a while, then everything is fine or relatively fine, right? There are things to to fix. But the way that Uber and Lyft work is that they have particular incentives for people to work particular hours with more control. If you want to make the real money in Uber and Lyft, you need to do one of those uh, special drivers that they have. For example, you need to work 40 hours a week to work in particular hours and uh, to not reject uh, a a particular percentage of rides. That means lots of of control on you, just like a traditional employee. Um, Think about also wearing uniforms, what you need to do in your car, et cetera. You see more and more control of these companies in their workers. And yet we don't call them workers. We call them independent contractors. So I don't think that this is the answer, um, that they, that people should be just responsible for what they have done. Sometimes people don't have choice, sometimes people make mistakes, and basically there are things that we don't agree in the law, that they are very basic and we don't allow people to just waive them. Uh, you'd also touch on uh, what has been getting a lot of attention, and that's the requirement for the Class 4 license. So was that? Do you think that was a good move or a bad move? Um, I'm, I'm conflicted about it, honestly. Um, I think I think I think it's elegant in some way. So one thing I'll say is that um, uh, Uber and Lyft keep saying that this is in order to protect the taxi industry, and this is something I disagree with. I don't think that having regulation here is the interest of the taxi industry only. It's the it's the interest of all of us. So one of these things that putting this uh, barrier in place is that it's going to limit the numbers of drivers on the road. This is true. Um, And this is not necessarily a bad thing for BC. Think about it. Suddenly one day we'll have your Uber or Lyft. Think about how many more cars on the streets. Think about the environment. Think about congestion. Um, I don't think we are ready to that. So this is going to make things a little bit more gradual. I'm also reminding that other places in the world, notably New York, New York City, has the same requirement. And yet there are more Uber drivers in New York City than, I don't know, what is very other things that are very common in New York City, right? Uh, there are so many of them there. Um, so I don't say it is a barrier, but it's not a significant barrier that's going to result with not having any uh, ride hailing here. I think that eventually um, what it's going to do is assure safety. These are people who ride who are um, taking other people and are responsible for their safety. There are actually statistics by one of my colleagues from UBC that found that uh, people with class 4 license um, have had, I think, 13% less uh, car accidents in a particular period of time. So it's a matter of safety, one, and it's a matter of putting some limits um, on what's going to happen. So it's more a gradual entrance into the market. And I would agree with you on that, that it is, it is a move, it's a measure that will lessen the number of drivers, of Uber or Lyft drivers that are on the road. Uh, where there's some controversy, though, when we talk about it being a, a measure of safety, that would imply that 
taxi drivers are the safest drivers on the streets. And no offense to the safe taxi drivers out there, but I have had horrific cab rides. And even this morning, I was almost hit by a cab that ran a red light. I would suggest they are not the safest drivers on the streets. Um, you know, I'm not going. To, I'm not going to debate that. But look, um, the kind of barrier that it puts is not that significant. We're talking about something like one hundred dollars, which. Let me let me be a, a prophet for a moment and tell you probably Uber and Lyft are going to pay for that or to reimburse the people for that. So it's going to be $100. It means that you have for two years already the license um, class five um, and that you didn't have a significant number of um, other uh, traffic violations before. You need to take the test. So it is some barrier, but it's not so significant as to really stop things. Um, and yes, you're right. Uh, uh, not all uh, taxi drivers are the safest uh, drivers, but you c- can you imagine that if they didn't even need this kind of extra license, what would be the situation? Um, class four is not just for taxi drivers. It's for other type of commercial drivers. Um, and it's fine that we take extra precaution. I think, when we are letting other people uh, giving rights for passengers. All right. Well, it's uh, some interesting points that you've brought up in the piece, for sure. We will leave it there. Uh, Arez, thank you so much for joining us, though, to talk a bit more about it. I appreciate your time today. My pleasure. Have a nice day. Well, you might think it goes without saying, if you are headed to a job interview, you should wear regular shoes, maybe something with laces, not bunny slippers. But that is something that apparently happened. And this is according to a new survey that was done by Express Employment Centers. A survey taking a look at the behaviors, you could say, of people who show up to job interviews. And sorry, Express Employment Professionals is the group that did this survey. And let's bring in Jessica Kulo, owner and president of several Express Employment locations in Alberta. Jessica, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. Some of the findings in this almost uh, seem hard to believe. The bunny mm-hmm. slippers being one of them. Uh, also somebody that ate throughout an entire interview. Yep, definitely surprising. Um, not something that we you know, typically see, but interesting, the stories that came out when we did this survey. I guess one individual took the opportunity to, to bring several things and eat them during an interview. Um, a banana, an apple some nuts and um, also gave the the trash at the end of the interview to the interviewer. Which also seems completely bizarre. (laughs) Yeah, no, we um, have, we've heard of, it's been fun. We've heard of some very unique, interesting stories through doing this survey. Another story I was told just last week was um, a candidate had come in wearing um, a top hat and a cape to the interview. And then when the interview is over, um, he gave the top hat to the interviewer and said, I hope that this hat brings you as much luck as it's brought me. So he made an impact. Yeah. Uh, Now, if you're applying for a job to be a magician, maybe that would be okay. But I guess it depends on what the job is, too. That's right. Yeah, typically that's not 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 appropriate attire. Uh, and what else? Uh, coming in pretty high on the list, I was a bit surprised. Showing up late. Yeah, and even in in my business, we see that um, there's a difference between somebody showing up late and you know blaming their Google Maps or their GPS or parking, and and then the one who calls and says, "Hey, I'm really sorry, I didn't leave early enough." Just taking accountability for being late, apologizing. I think most people that are interviewing are reasonable and can understand when something like that might happen. But personally, if the person comes late um, and then they're right away blaming something or someone else, it's not a good impression. No, I guess not. Uh, We mentioned the bunny slippers, but Mm -hmm. it also came in. That was, uh, I suppose, an extreme example, but uh, inappropriate clothing in general. Mm-hmm. Yeah, inappropriate clothing in general. Um, we've heard of people experiencing candidates coming in like pajamas, pajama bottoms, um, uh, somebody wearing a T-shirt that said bleep you on it. Um, that person didn't even get the interview, walked into the office wearing that, though. Um, but yeah, clothing is definitely uh, uh, came up a lot in the survey. Which, which it seems like a bit of a no-brainer, but I guess it's not in that, uh, and and it shouldn't really depend, I would think, on the job in that, as a general rule, you would think people would know that you want to you look respectful and respectable yeah. and put together. 
Yeah, you would think that. But I think just generally even um, uh, the workplace, I think, is getting more casual. And and that's okay. But I think people will take it to extremes where they shouldn't, especially for an interview. Right, because I would imagine or think that even if you're applying for a job in a workplace that is casual and say workers are allowed to wear jeans, that doesn't necessarily mean you should wear jeans to the interview. You're right. You're right. And um, we just we see people think that they must they must think it is acceptable. That's the interesting thing with the survey is it's just a reflection of what like a lot of candidates or job seekers do think is acceptable in an interview. And and I guess in the workplace going forward. Once they're hired, if they get the job. Yeah, Um, this one uh, surprised me a little bit as well in that people reported uh, the candidates uh, either responding to text messages or actually Mm -hmm. answering their phone. Yeah, we've seen that and heard about that. Um, I had a client tell me one time that a candidate they were interviewing not only answered their phone call, answered their cell phone, but then carried on the conversation and accepted another job in the interview they didn't excuse themselves huh well then i guess that's okay if you don't need that interview anymore right yeah yeah though we see that and um uh, answering text messages for sure but you know and there again like if i've experienced somebody's phone ringing like we are all human maybe they forgot to turn it off it's the person that turns it off immediately and puts it away versus the one that answers it that's the difference and how they respond to their phone phone ringing or dinging or whatever yeah, yeah, exactly. Because you're right, we all make mistakes. And I would imagine mm-hmm. the, the person doing the interview, uh, you're not going to hold it against somebody. If it's an honest mistake, you've left the phone on and you're apologetic and, and turn it right. off immediately. Exactly. Yep. What about bringing people to the interview mm-hmm. with you? Yep, we've seen that. Um, spouses and parents, um, and we've heard about this as well now through this survey, um, where, yeah, the a uh, parent is adamant that they need to attend and go in the interview with the adult child or spouses, same thing. Um, spouse wants to go in and answer the questions. Um, and then we've also seen and heard about um, children, like young children being brought to an interview. And one survey respondent shared a story about how they actually asked, the candidate asked the receptionist of the company to look after the kid while they went in for the interview. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, that doesn't go over well. And on the other hand, you know, if a parent is really strapped and, and they don't have childcare and they still really want to make the interview, I think conversation should be had prior, you know, call and just say, hey, I want to come for this interview more than anything, but I, I have a young child, I can't leave alone. And maybe then there could be accommodation made or rescheduling or something like that. But um, yeah, bringing others along I, in my office is unacceptable. We won't interview somebody if they want to bring in a spouse or a parent, that's for sure. But it just seems very strange that you have to bring in some kind of babysitter or some kind of, you know, <laughs> chaperone or something to the interview. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah, I don't know, there's probably a few different dynamics going on there, but um, it was interesting that we heard about that through the survey as well, so people are seeing it, seeing it happen for sure. And you also heard uh, instances of people showing up uh, after having uh, imbibed alcohol or uh, perhaps under the influence of some kind of drug. Yeah, we've we've heard of that too, and um, maybe more and more too. I would say that's increased. Um, I was asked by someone else, are we seeing these bad behaviors increase over time? And in 15 years, I would say no, other than um, maybe being under the influence that maybe has increased over time. Um, and that's a tough thing. You know, people are maybe unsure or skeptical to, they don't want to accuse anybody of that unless they're 100% sure. But if they even have the suspicion, or the inkling that that could be the case, I mean, they're not hiring the person, generally. No, no I wouldn't think so. Um, you also took a look at uh, things that people doing the interview uh, have done or, or that uh, the candidates uh, found a little bit odd. Uh, oversharing was one of them, which uh, would, would put, mm-hmm. I would imagine, would put the candidate in a, in a bit of an awkward position. Yeah, yeah, The if, when the candidate overshares, and we've seen that in our offices too, where they yeah, it's it, it borderline inappropriate or just straight out inappropriate what they want to share. It makes the, the interviewer quite uncomfortable. Um, and then we've heard of instances, too, where the um, candidate may be like, there was one girl that was saying the candidate was kept reaching over and touching her across the desk and mm. <laughs> just 
it did make the interviewer uncomfortable. Yeah, I guess so. Uh, we talked about how w- bad it is if you're a candidate answering the phone, but what about when an interviewer does it? Mm-hmm. And we've heard of that too, and I, I don't think that's right or respectful at all either. Same goes for being late. I think the interviewers need to respect the candidate's time too. Um, they should not be late. They should not answer their phone. They should not answer emails. And um, the other thing that I've, I've heard of uh, where the interviewer only takes like less than five minutes with the candidate, and I don't think that that's right either. They might feel right off the bat that the candidate isn't a fit for the role, but they have to be respectful of the fact that the candidate, and this is assuming that the candidate is dressed appropriately and showing interest and all of that good stuff. But um, if the candidate is there and giving up their time, I think it's important that the interviewer at least gets gives them enough time to really get an understanding of what they've done before and why they might be a candidate or why they were even called in for this interview. Because I've heard of candidates feeling disrespected when they get all ready and probably nervous and sleep well the night before, get there early, prepared with their questions, and then they're only in with the interviewer for a few minutes. And it doesn't make them feel very good. No, I guess not. Uh, all right, well, we'll we'll leave it there. We are out of time, but uh, some fascinating findings uh, from mm-hmm. that server uh, survey. Sorry, uh, Jessica. Thank you so much for joining us to talk about this today. Thank you so much. Have a great day. Well, we've had a a fair amount of discussions when it comes to taxes, and I'll share some of the calls to the buzz line a bit later on in this hour. But right now, we are going to take a look at the vacancy tax. And one of the communities that has really been highlighted in the way that the vacancy tax was rolled out in B.C. is Belcara. And you might remember back to when Belcara was in the news because of the certain cabins in Belcara uh, that are not what you would call uh, rental stock for year-round rentals. Many of them are water access only, yet they still fall into the category where the owners have to pay the vacancy tax if they are not rented out and if they are not the principal residents. Let's bring in Neil Belenke, the mayor of Belcara, for an update on this story. Mayor, thank you so much for being with us. My pleasure. Uh, do you have an idea how many people uh, had to pay this tax or how much was paid by uh, members of your community? We haven't provided any data as to how much was paid. 57 of Belcara's 300 properties are water access or boat access designated properties. So those are the total number at risk. Some of them are not yet built on. And so that raw land will be taxed next year if nothing changes. And then some of the cabins are so far away and they have not yet exceeded the $400,000 limit that they haven't been yet captured with the speculation tax. So I'm going to guess somewhere in the 20 to 30 property range, but I can't be certain. And, and describe them again for people, if uh, people aren't familiar with the area, what, what exactly are the structures? What, are they, what do they look like? What are we talking about? They're a range. They range from 63 years in, in, in a family where the, uh, the, the grandfather built the cabin by hand. Many of them ha- are propane-powered, meaning not only are they water access only, but of course they're propane-powered for any kind of heat generation or power source, and as a result are unable to secure renter insurance. No insurance company will insure a propane-powered uh, cabin. These cabins also are often not insulated. They're not used. They're not designed to be used in the winter because the, the water is so rough. It's not safe to go back and forth all the time. And as a result, renting them out year-round or living in them year-round, it would be challenging to say the very least. And some of them don't even have bottled water. Hmm. And, and when you met with Carol James, with the minister, about this the first time, what kind of a reaction did you get when you wanted this exemption? She wasn't interested in talking. She said she was kept up to speed by our local MLA, Rick Glumack, who didn't canvas for us to be excluded. And she said she knew everything she needed to know. And she repeated over and over that I could apply with the mayors next year to, uh, to request an exemption. But this year was final. And so is your hope that uh, applying again, there is still a chance you might or the owners might get the exemption? I hope. Of course. Of course I hope. These these are not the people who were targeted for this tax in the first place. Carol James herself said it wasn't intended to capture people who had cabins. So these aren't rental stock that are going to be going back into the market and being rented. They're not homes that are being that have the, the potential of being lived in year round. These these are not who they're looking for and the, and the NDP themselves admitted that Belcara is collateral damage. Even they don't think these people should be taxed.
And, and I guess people will hear this, though, and one of, one of the, the more puzzling things is if we're talking about something, like you said, in some cases there's no insulation, they're propane heated, they're not accessible, uh, they're not meant to be lived in year-round. Uh, why are they assessed so high, then, that they get captured in the tax? It's because of the property value, not the structure. One of the cabins that was highlighted is $1.4 million in its overall assessment, but the structure itself is assessed at 13000 and believe me, that's generous. <laughs> okay, uh, because I think that's, that's, that's what, what, what didn't seem to make sense to a lot of people, is that if they are these rustic little cabins, that, they are, that they're assessed at being worth so much. Yeah, the, the people who think that these are mansions that are on the water that are sitting empty are absolutely incorrect. I've had, I haven't had a single person approach me with a full-size home complaining about the vacancy or speculation tax. The people are coming to me and are crying in front of me because they feel that they're at risk of losing their parents' legacy for their family are the people who are entrusted as second and sometimes third-generation holders of these cabins that were built decades ago. They're the ones who are often retirees who don't have the income available to be able to finance this, this tax that's not, not supposed to be applied to them. And I would imagine, too, it's even more of a, of a bit of a slap in when you look at the boundaries of where the tax is, the fact that the Gulf Islands are not included, that Whistler is not included. There are so many other areas, and not to suggest they should, uh, but if they're not, then why is Belcara? That's the crux of my entire argument. Whatever the criteria was that allowed the exemption for each of those municipalities, Belcara meets and exceeds. It's, it's insanity to me to think that Belcara is any less remote or any more any more rentable than any of those or any of those communities. Whistler has an established and accepted housing crisis. Lions Bay doesn't have a single water access only house or cabin. Bowen Island, yeah, it's remote. I'm not arguing any of these shouldn't be spec tax. Sorry, any of the spec tax shouldn't be applied across British Columbia. But these municipalities that have been exempted, we meet and exceed their criteria, and by that alone, we should be exempted. And and um, even the calling it a speculation tax, I mean, this has been brought up before as well. The people in, in Belcara, the people who own these cabins, these are not speculators. The, 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 the shortest period of ownership of everybody I'm representing is 22 years, and the longest is 63 years. Wow. And, uh, and like you said, legacies in, in some cases and family cabins that have been passed down. We have, we have in one case, uh, a family that has 42 members who consistently use their cabin. It's not water, water access only. This, this is the one, I, the one I'm describing is in Belcara proper. But it can't be lived in full time because it's not set up for, for 42 people to live in full time. And they share ownership across the cabin. So the challenge for them is to try to figure out how to be able to manage this. this, this it, it truly is a legacy. It was an investment made by their grandparents. And how to be able to afford to keep it within the family when it's not rental stock, even if it is road access. It's, it's, summer, it's a summer cabin. Right. Uh, and and you're, so you're applying again or hoping that uh, perhaps they'll have a second thought at the BC government and allow for the exemption. Uh, how do you go about doing that? Do you have to set up more meetings or is there a process that you can go through to try and do that? We haven't been advised. All we've been advised is that the meeting is set for September 12th. We've been given no indication as to what's going to happen at the meeting, what the structure is going to be, the agenda is going to be. All we know is stay tuned for more details. This is a meeting that was originally intended to be held in June, <clears throat> and I don't have more data. I made a four, I'm, I, we put an enormous amount of work in this municipality, put together a package, which includes photos, maps, letters, and history of the cabins that we were asking to be excluded. Carol wouldn't even look at the binder, hmm. period. The meeting she gave us was less than 10 minutes. She said she had all the information, and we have nothing new to submit. It was comprehensive last time, so I don't know how... We can do anything differently than we did last time, so I'm quite concerned about the, about a decision, uh, a positive decision for us this year. And what about the timeline in that the, not having the meeting in June and pushing it to September? I, I can't. I haven't found a single person, even within the NDP, uh, who's who's been able to communicate to me why Belcare is facing this in the first place. Uh, the delays, the tax, the uh, the lack of representation. Our MLA refuses to come to Belcara to speak with residents. He first presented the spec tax on September 29th, September 29th of 2018. The residents had a bunch of questions. He committed to answering them. He never came back. He lost all of the data, 100% of the records from that meeting, and he refuses to respond to any questions or come back to the community and talk to the residents again. The NDP have turned a complete blind eye to Belcara. 
And in the meantime, while you continue with this and hope for uh, an exemption to come in the future, are, are people in, in are looking at perhaps creative solutions to this and not to, to suggest tax fraud at all, but in that family, say the family that you mentioned that has 42 members, what's to stop whoever's name is on the deed of the cabin from renting it to another family member for a nominal amount every month? Therefore, it's on paper, it's rented and, and perhaps solves the problem. That's a great question. I haven't been involved in, in the conversations around how to break the law, which is essentially what, what people would have to be doing in coming up with creative flash paperwork-like solutions. I know one family who said that they're not going to file. I don't know if, in fact, they did file or not, but they said, you can pry, my, my tax, you can pry that speculation tax out of my cold, dead fingers. Um, the others, I think, are just trying to find a way to, to, to solve this financial burden. They all pay their taxes. They're good members of the community. In fact, they're some of the longest members of the municipality since its incorporation. These, these are not the – people think I'm nuts for trying to stick up for, for 25 of these people, but the reality is that's our job. These people deserve the advocacy and they deserve to be exempted. I just don't know how to do it any better than we've already tried. If there is no exemption granted, do you see this perhaps becoming a legal battle? Well, there's already been conversation about a class action lawsuit, but that's not a municipal uh, suit, of course. That's just being done by, by whatever law firm and, the, and the, uh, whichever individuals would like to sign up. I've been a bit of a lightning rod for people outside of Belcara as well to try and understand what's happening with the speculation tax. So I'm, I'm quite aware of the, of the number of discontented, mostly cabin owners, uh, who feel like they're being inappropriately targeted by this tax. But with regards to the actual lawsuit, and if there is going to be a class action lawsuit, I'm not kept up to speed on that, and I've actually requested not to be, because the municipality has nothing to do with it. We're doing the best we can just by virtue of advocacy. Right. Although, I mean, if somebody, if a homeowner uh, goes that route as well, then, I mean, we're talking about another expense also. As we know, lawyers uh, are expensive to, to get lawyers involved, uh, even if somebody wanted to go after the government that way. We're still talking about these cabin owners facing big expenses. Yeah, the best lawyers will admit to their clients at all times that the only people who win in a lawsuit are the lawyers. So the, uh, there's no question that it, it would be a long road, and I'm sure it wouldn't be, it wouldn't be uh, enjoyable nor cheap. The, uh, I have seen other uh, notices in the news of other lawsuits that have been filed regarding this tax. It, the, 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 the most surprising part of this entire thing is the NDP has the ability to apply this tax properly. They've exempted municipalities before, and they created an exemption process that could have satisfied the needs of these, of these uh, cabin owners. Something as simple as, have you owned your cabin for more than 10 years? Would have been enough to exempt these people. The NDP chose not to try to make these exemptions possible. They decided not to support these people. It was an active decision. When they chose to, to, to include Parksville and Whistler and Lions Bay and Bowen Island and, and the, uh, the islands in the Juan de Fuca, they made those decisions establishing precedents. This is not like they'd be opening Pandora's box to be able to isolate these and, and carve out these cabin owners from this tax. They want to tax these people. And that's my concern is I don't know what's going to change their mind because I didn't start this, this news campaign because uh, as, as a first salvo in trying to in, in advocacy, I spent months trying to work with the NDP and our local MLA to gain this exemption, and they refused to do it. So now I have no idea whether it's being nice or being vocal. Either way, we haven't been successful. Well, we will continue to follow this and uh, find out what happens after the September 12th meeting. Uh, In the meantime, uh, Mayor Belenke, thank you so much for coming on and talking about this today. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Have a great day. 911. 911. What's your emergency? Ah, I'm on a cruise ship. Ah, There was an explosion. Oh, my God. The ship is sinking. I can't get out. There's water everywhere. I've got a lock on your location. Stay with me. Hello? Are you there? Help is on the way. Angela Bassett and Peter Krause return in an all-new season of 911 on a new night. Thursday, March 14th on Global. Stream on Stack TV.